Hello, everybody, and you're joining us once again for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. We're getting closer and closer to the end of both the NFL season and our first season podcasting. Only two more episodes left. So, Joe, elation for some, disappointment for others. As if Green Bay losing wasn't bad enough, I lost both my predictions. I lost money on the bills. It wasn't a good week for me. You were quite salty on Sunday night. I only watched half of the Bills game because I was too annoyed. I was like, I've just watched Green Bay lose. I'm watching the Bills lose. I can't watch any more of this. And I had to watch the rest on Monday. Well, look, I think on the whole, you know, Green Bay made the NFC Championship game again, two years running. You know, that's pretty hard to do. They had home foot advantage. They were top seeds in the NFC. It just seemed there maybe one or two players short. Could have maybe drafted a player in the first round, perhaps. <laughs> Well, look, I'll tell you what, let's jump straight into it, shall we? Yep. Why don't we kick off talking about Tampa first, and then we can move on to Green Bay. Let's talk about old man Brady. i tell you what, that first half, he was rolling back for years. People people talk smack about Brady every single year. I, I think it must be about the 10th anniversary now of people saying Brady's got to retire next year. It's just been going on for so long, and people saying the decline's setting in, and he can't probe a ball long, he's not got the bomb anymore. Some of those passes he was wheeling out in that first quarter, the second quarter as well, were were just sheer class. The touchdown to Evans was brilliant. The touchdown to Scotty Miller just before the half on a dime. He was finding the weakness in Green Bay's secondary and he was mercilessly picking it apart. But also the absolute accuracy under pressure. The amount of third down conversions that they made in that first half was just unbelievable. We literally couldn't stop them. We'll come on to that, but but a lot of those third down conversions were basically down to two players in the Green Bay secondary. I know exactly who one of them is. I know, yeah, I know you know who's one of them, but there were two. There's one who's the kind of, you know, who's the obvious, but there was another player who was giving up a lot of third downs and we'll get on to him as well. But Brady was excellent. I mean, he turned into James Winston in the third quarter and he just went through a patch. At that point... The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a great team as they are, stepped up. And when Brady threw basically two straight interceptions, the defense then stepped up at that point and produced two third announce at a critical moment. I mean, the game could have started to get away from Tampa Bay there. Green Bay could have taken the lead, having been 18 points down. And the momentum swing there could have been massive. But the defense stepped up when they had to. Look, aside from a dodgy third quarter, Brady was excellent. And I don't think there's any point really in going on about how he's the greatest of all time. It's not a debate, it's greatness. And we saw greatness once again from Brady on Sunday night. Yeah, absolutely. We've already talked about some weaknesses in the Green Bay defence, but I think what also needs to be applauded is Bruce Arians' play style and his plan for this game, because it was aggressive, but it worked perfectly. It was aggressive. I'm not sure if maybe it was too aggressive in the third quarter. I'm not sure if Tampa Bay could have maybe slowed the game down a little bit when Tom Brady was going through a patch where he was struggling. They decided to still constantly air the ball out. And I mean, maybe you could have taken one of those interceptions away had they just lent on the run game a little bit more. They finished the game 36 pass attempts to 24 carries. So, you know, 60% passing. So it, it was very aggressive, a lot going through the air. Look, it worked and it was very, very effective in the first half. I'm not sure if they could have adjusted a little bit in the third quarter. At the end of the day, like you say, though, the Bucks won. So you've got to say it was the right strategy. But I'm just maybe a little bit surprised they didn't go to Fournette and Ronald Jones a little bit more. Do you think that was a result, though, of the performance 
up to that point because they weren't gaining many yards on the ground. Well, I mean, Fournette was. Look at Fournette's touchdown. He ran it in from over 20 yards out. He had 12 carries, 55 yards. He was averaging 4.6 yards a carry, which is, you know, on the good side of four. Mm. Rojo, yeah, he was less effective. 10 carries, 16 yards. He was just kind of treading heavy water. Fournette, though, I thought looked pretty effective most of the time he was getting the ball. Should we talk about the flip side of that then, which is the lack of aggression from Lafleur? And I think predominantly we're all going to be talking about that kick versus going for a touchdown or going for the eight-point conversion on fourth down. Yeah, so Charles and I have had a huge big argument today. It was in doubt whether we were going to do the podcast. There's been tears. We've been arguing for basically about two or three hours about the Lafleur <laughs> decision to kick on fourth and eight rather than going for it. Now, I'm firmly in the camp of going for it. But I, I, Charles, I'm a decent fellow that I am. I'm going to let you lay your stool out and you can explain your thinking. Okay, sounds good. I don't think necessarily kicking was the right call, but I, I struggled to see how it was categorically the wrong call. I, th- I suppose that's in the camp where I stand. I think that... Both options resulted in a very low likelihood that we would win the game or even delay it and take it to overtime. So you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But from my point of view, Rogers has already failed one two-point conversion. Admittedly, it was a drop in the end zone rather than Rogers' ability. But he he also had three attempts to get it in the end zone up to that point and the Bucks had kept him out. So the likelihood of A, converting on fourth down anyway but then B going on to make the two-point conversion for me seemed very unlikely I think what Lafleur was banking on was let's get the three points here I've got to back my team to get a defensive stop and you know they just intercepted Brady a couple of times so maybe he was a little bit high on the defense and then that comes off then all we need is we've got what 90 seconds on the clock something like that for Rodgers to go up the field and try and get a touchdown Okay, so here's the thing. Now, we both agree that they needed to get a touchdown. They had to get a touchdown. Now, yeah. yeah, you said that, that there was three attempts there. But at the end of the day, if you are trying to get a touchdown, even if you're, you're on fourth down, being eight yards from the end zone is a far better situation to be in than having to start over from, you know, at best for 25, your own 25-yard line, 75 yards away You've got to score a touchdown. So you're not going to get in a much better place to score a touchdown than you are here. You kick that field goal, you still have to score a touchdown. A field goal really at this point in the game is basically as good as a punt because you're just giving the ball back. And when you're giving the ball back to Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Mr. Championship, Mr. Playoffs, he's going to basically tell Leonard Fournette which way of a line of scrimmage to run and which gap to target because Tom Brady reads that like it's a child's book and knows exactly where to tell the running back to run and he will tell him where to run. Tom Brady's going to finish the game out. So the last thing you want to do is give the ball back needing to still make points up. You have a chance at, yeah, sure. It's still, you know, unlikely that you're going to get eight points the way you played. No one's saying that it's the likely outcome, but your best chance to win is to go for it there. You fail and Brady's got to start over from the eight yard line or closer to his own goal and you've got them backed up, and you can throw everything at it then to try and contain them. And then if you do contain them and they punt it, then you're probably taking it from your own 40 or your own 50. And then you go again and try and get eight points again. But you have to go for it. You have to have to go for it. And that's old school coaching, just, you know, the look and smell of it. That's analytics at all. Everything about it says go for it. And 
you're basically saying that you trust your defense over the greatest quarterback of all time versus your quarterback and his offense who are supposed to be highly powered against the other team's defense. Everything about that call was just the wrong call. I totally understand what you're saying there. And our defense, I think this was the difficulty, right? Which is that there wasn't the trust in the offense there because when we got into that end zone territory, we weren't converting like we have been doing all season. I think the fear from Lafleur was I'm giving Rodgers two chances to score points. There's zero room for error. And so he decided to back the defense and hopefully give Rodgers more opportunities to get down the field and get the touchdown. The problem was that the defense also wasn't delivering. But here's the thing. You're saying that they're struggling. Fine, right? We'll give them another chance because you have to score a touchdown. So if you're going up the field again, so if you're taking the field goal and then going up the field again, then chances are that you might get to another fourth once again. So then you've got four chances. You have to score a touchdown. Well, why don't you take this fourth as well? And then you've got five chances. You've got to score a touchdown. And if you don't think that you can score it from eight yards out, then there's no reason whatsoever to have any dream of scoring after Tampa Bay punt it back to you, which they're not going to punt it back to you because they're going to keep the ball and you're never going to see it again. But if they punt it back to you and you have a minute left on the clock, you've got a stopped clock from eight yards out. You can go into the huddle. You can call the play. You can work the play. You can do your best play. Do it. I mean, if you fail, well, then you can go again. It's not the end of the game. You've still got a chance, but you're giving yourself the best chance by getting that touchdown. I mean, even if you don't get the two point, then you've just got to get a field goal, which is a lot easier to get than a touchdown. So let's move on from this one. I mentioned earlier that there were two players who Brady was picking on. We both know that King was bad. And I said pretty early on, but I noticed that it was him who was skinned on the Scotty Miller touchdown. And then from that point, I've got a kind of habit of this. I notice the player's playing bad, and then I just watch that player for the whole game and just watch every mistake that he does. Kevin King, he stood out. But you also had Chandon Sullivan, who gave up three third down conversions in the first half. Basically, when Tampa Bay were on third and whatever, they would target Chandon Sullivan, and he would give up the goods. So all I'm basically saying here is Kevin King, yeah, he's the standout bad performance, but don't sleep on how bad Chad and Sullivan was. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Because for me, we talked about AB being out of the game, actually ahead of the game when you and I were chatting. And I was saying how relieved I was he was out because King is such a liability. And any one less wide receiver that can run against King is great. He was a liability going into the game. I, I always knew that. And he played dreadfully, absolutely shockingly. But Sullivan isn't one that I actually necessarily picked up on when watching the game. So... If I can bring myself to do it, Joe, I might revisit that and give that another watch. Sullivan allowed three catches for 57 yards and all three of those catches gained first downs on third downs. And so the Bucks were third and whatever three times and they managed to make 57 yards on three passes Sullivan's way. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of yardage to be giving up on third down. Massively. So he's complicit. And, you know, just to tie up the Kevin King here thing, so, so let's just go through the dreadful Kevin King play. He basically mistimed his jump when he was defending Mike Evans for the opening touchdown. He jumped about, you know, three metres out in front of Mike Evans, and it was just it's just a terrible play to give up a touchdown there. When Fournette ran in, if you actually watch that playback, there's a player flat on his face on the goal line. That's Kevin King. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
He was torched by Scotty Miller just before the half. I can almost hear the voiceover. You just that photo of King on the floor, record scratch. <laughs> I bet you're wondering yeah, how scratch. I got here, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, he was torched by Scotty Miller just before the half. Basically, his man coverage was just abysmal. For a cornerback, he shouldn't be playing man. He shouldn't be playing man one-on-one without serious safety help because he was incapable. He gave up five catches for 66 yards, two of which were touchdowns. And when Brady targeted King, Brady had a passer rating of 140.2. And it would have been higher had Mike Evans not dropped a pass. This was something that we kind of noticed as well. He celebrated a Mike Evans drop catch like he was Richard Sherman just swatting down a ball to win Super Bowl. So embarrassing. It was, it was so embarrassing. So King is someone who is out of contract this season, can't see that being renewed at all. One of the other, I would say, landmark players on our team that's also up in free agency this offseason is Aaron Jones. And he didn't demonstrate anything special compared to the other two backs that were out there on the day, which is Dylan and and Williams. Do you think he has potentially put himself, based on that performance, in a bit of an awkward position for renegotiation? I don't think that Aaron Jones was staying at Green Bay, whatever happened. I think it was pretty... Well, I mean, they offered him another contract that would put him in top five paid running backs, and he rejected it because he wanted more guaranteed money. So... And Green Bay aren't in a position to give Aaron Jones that kind of money when they have Jamal Williams and a rookie on the roster who, as you say, are basically just as capable. There's two key takeaways here for me, really. The first is this was a high-profile game and it was a momentum-shifting error that he made to give up the fumble as Green Bay was starting to get back into the game. So is that. It's not a big enough thing in itself to, you know, turn teams off or make him not get a contract or make him not sign big money. But then the second thing, the perhaps more important thing is he was injured on a play again. And in his relatively short career so far, three, four years, he's had quite a few knee sprains, thigh sprains, MCLs. He's missed games. And a running back that, you know, got the usage that he got last year. I mean, Green Bay put some miles on the clock last year. They put some miles on the clock through most of his season because it's only really been in the playoffs that we've seen Williams come in and Dylan get the usage that he's been getting. And so more than, you know, fumbling the ball or not having a great game, I'd say probably injuries at this stage are what would stop me as a GM giving him a decent contract with good guaranteed money. Yeah, I mean, I struggle to see how anyone's coming in and paying more for him than what we offered. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Really surprising that he rejected. I would sack his agent. Yeah. No, no, I I seriously would. If I was Aaron Jones and I was getting, you know, top five running back money, I would take that. Because you're not Christian McCaffrey. You're not Dalvin Cook. You're a good running back. You had an anomalous season last year where you scored a lot of touchdowns situationally. You haven't come near that in terms of touchdown production this year. You're in an offense with Aaron Rodgers, so you're always, you know, at an advantage. No, he should have taken it. He should have taken it, in in my view. If he goes and gets a contract for more, I'll turn around and say, well done, I was wrong. But I can't see him getting more than what Green Bay have offered him. Well, I I don't think a sensible outfit would offer more than that because you're just not going to get the value back, I wouldn't have thought, but... That's one for the future, I suppose. And then I suppose the only last player that is probably worth talking about is Rodgers. There's already rumours floating about that 
He wants to renegotiate his contract after signing the extension back in 2018. He had an MVP performance this season. What's your thoughts there? Do, do Green Bay bring him back? or I'm strongly in the camp of if Aaron Rodgers wants a little bit more cash, give him more cash. He's going to have a cap hit next year, I think, of like $37 million. At the end of the day, the Green Bay Packers are built around Aaron Rodgers. He makes the average players that they have in the receiving core, he makes them look good. He runs the offense there. He's looked up to by the team. He may not be liked by everyone, but he's looked up to. Green Bay's defense this year has been nothing special, and he's carried them all the way to an NFC Championship again. If it's another $5 million that he wants, $35 million. And I know that there's not an awful lot of cap space at Green Bay. I think they're going into 2021 needing to clear up $28 million of cap space. Don't care. Find a way. Do what you need to do to keep Aaron Rodgers happy. And I'll just finish off this point as well. I'm slightly biased in saying this because obviously I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan and, you know, the opinions we have about Green Bay. But Green Bay fans, I think, have this almost sense of entitlement that whenever they pick up a quarterback and they've already got a good one, well, then it's time for that old one to go because this quarterback's going to be the next best thing. It happened with Brett Favre. It happened when Aaron Rodgers came in and replaced him. And they think, oh, well, we've got Jordan Love now. So when they say the time's right, Jordan Love will come in and he'll be a franchise quarterback for the next 15 years because that's just a Green Bay way of how things happen. It's not. You're not going to get a quarterback as good as Aaron Rodgers maybe ever again. Maybe ever again in how competitive the quarterback market is, how hard it is to get a quarterback. In terms of skill and talent, Aaron Rodgers is one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. He might be 37, but 37 is the new 32. He's got four or five years left of good play if he wants to. I'd be doing everything I can to keep him because there's still a small window to go out there and win the big game. But you need Aaron Rodgers on your team to do it. So I don't disagree with the majority of that, to be honest. I suppose my only feeling is twice now we've tried to get to Super Bowl and Aaron Rodgers on his own isn't enough. And I don't know if we pay him that extra money, whether with the people that we're potentially losing in this free agency window whether we can bolster our team up enough with what's left to give Rodgers what he needs to get us to Super Bowl. That's my fear. And so I suppose my thought around it is, do you pay the man the money so that you can get back to the conference finals? Or do you start your rebuild process and trade him for what you can get? 28 million is a lot, but it's not insurmountable. I mentioned this to you earlier on, just a kind of left field idea. The O-line has looked pretty good without Bakhtiari in it. He's got nearly a 20 million cap hit next year. He wipes off nearly all of the cap problems you have. Trade him. There'll be teams that will eat your arm off. There's ways of making cap space. You restructure people, you trade people, you do these kind of things. And at the end of the day, the reason that Aaron Rodgers doesn't have those tools around him to get to that just next level... It's not on Aaron Rodgers. There's not really... You can't turn around and say that there's more that the guy could have done when he's just had an MVP season. The general manager and the front office there have wasted an opportunity when you're in the middle of a window. Well, we said this at the beginning of the season, didn't we? we you and I were both laughing at Green Bay's draft approach and ha yeah. how much it's going to prevent Rodgers from getting that ring. And you've seen it clear as day in this game. You know, they were close. They were so close. They were one or two players sure. Yeah, if they drafted correctly, they could be at the Super Bowl by now. Let's put it this way, right? If there was a player, a cornerback, playing, you know, just at an average level rather than King or Sullivan, 
maybe Brady wouldn't have made those third downs. Maybe Brady wouldn't have got those touchdowns. Maybe Green Bay would have won by 14 points. It's one or two players that can really shift the whole kind of balance here. When you're playing against someone like Brady who can rip apart a team if he finds one weakness, which is what he did. So look, it's not Rodgers' fault that five million, if that's going to make him happy, something like that. And I'm just throwing out a number here, but I don't think it can be much more than five million because five million puts him, you know, right to the top of a quarterback pay scale once again. Just do it. Just do it. Just have a happy Aaron Rodgers. Well, I have a feeling if he stays, Aaron Rodgers will be drafting whoever he wants come draft day. (laughs) I think he will be. I think it's got to this stage now. He's 37 years old. He'll be older than some of the, you know, assistant coaches and stuff who are in that team. Just let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 seriously, because there's no one in that front officer who's really making decisions that are good. And, you know, this whole kind of Jordan Love thing, to show how bad that experiment has been, he was a healthy scratch in these playoff games. I know that, you know, they're saying there's potential, there's building, but if there was an inkling of anything really then surely you'd have him as the backup by this stage rather than whatever you know no-name quarterback they had as the backup instead didn't even make the game day roster love seen zero minutes and part of me always wondered if that was a little backdoor agreement with rogers look he's not coming in to replace you he's not going to take any minutes from you or the records that you're chasing we guarantee he doesn't see the field year one as long as you're healthy yeah, but still have him as a backup in case, you know, Rodgers gets taken out of the game, if he's any yeah, good. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, even when Brett Favre was playing, Rodgers in his first season played in like three games. And he might have sat on a bench for four, three years, but he was still getting a bit of game time and still getting rolled out there now and again. Jordan Love has played as many snaps as me and you have for the Green Bay Packers. And if Rodgers stays as well, who says that the Packers don't do a bit of a Josh Rosen with love here and try and trade him away to a quarterback needy team for a second round pick yeah don't write that off maybe happening cool let's move on to bills and kansas city chiefs then because i fear if we talk about this game for any longer joe i'm going to end up crying into my mug so let's talk about my home shall we did you see anything in this game that made you think he wasn't 100 percent, or that some of those injuries we were talking about last week the concussion the turf toe might find their way into the Super Bowl game in a couple of weeks. So just to start with, he will still have turf toe and turf toe will be affecting him. Whichever way he's playing and, and however he's playing, that is still there and that's still a factor. Now, how he played against the Bills, I think ultimately, for all the love you know, people have for the Bills and people wanted to see him do, well, they've got great fans, etc., etc. It was a mismatch. The Chiefs, when we got going, were a better team and they won rather comfortably. So overall for this game, we've probably got less to say about it. Mahomes was less mobile in this game. I think there were five rush attempts for five yards total. He didn't really do much with his feet. Is that a massive departure from his average? Just out of curiosity. So, you know, as an example, if I go through the first six games of the season, he didn't rush at all against Houston. Then he had 54 yards against the Chargers, 26 against Baltimore, 28 against New England, 21 against Raiders, 36 against Buffalo the first time. He generally picks up between kind of 20, 30 yards every game. Yeah, okay then. So it is having an impact. It's just kind of slightly changing the way that he's playing the game. And because of the injury that he had last week, there was obviously fewer option calls. So they were protecting him from that kind of point of view. It was get the ball out of your hands or get the ball to a running back. 
you know, when you win with the relative comfort that they did in the end, uh, I mean, the score was 38-24, but the score was padded by the Bills a little bit in the fourth quarter. You know, why take any more risk when you need to? Yeah. And so going into Super Bowl, do you think that any of that's going to have a big impact on how they play? I would say, you know, having experienced concussion myself, it can kind of come back a week or two later. Once you clear those kind of protocols and stuff, if you've had a bad one, it can kind of come back. I'm not saying that it will. And, you know, judging by how things happen, it maybe wasn't the worst kind of case of concussion. But first of all, I wouldn't fully write off concussion coming back. Turf toe, though, it's not something that I've experienced. But, you know, from every kind of pro you see on TV who has had it, they seem very keen to stress how it just doesn't go away, how it can affect you for three months, six months, how it will be affecting his play. Again, if he plays the same kind of game that he played against Buffalo, he can almost take it out of the equation. But uh, games are decided in the margins. At this kind of level, with the best two teams in the league, it's the margins. And you just don't know. And I don't think any kind of commentators or fans will know unless Mahomes explicitly states it and said, I couldn't make that throw because my toe was hurting me and it put me off. Unless something like that is said, we're probably not going to know because we probably won't see him grimace and we won't see him, you know, hobble on it. But there's quite a chance that it will affect him in some way. So we talked about the defensive backs for Green Bay and the kind of bad day they were having, especially in man coverage. I just wanted to bring up the defensive backs for Kansas City. Sticky is the word that the commentators use a lot, and I think that this time they were pretty correct. The man coverage was incredible. You look at some of those plays, and there was just nothing developing down the field for Josh Allen at all. Because the cornerbacks were just staying with their man and going all the way. They weren't getting beaten for speed. They weren't giving away any separation. And when you're playing against cornerbacks like that, it's hard for anyone to do much against that. Yeah, and actually, it's really interesting because something that I noticed while I was re-watching the game was how the Bills tried to involve the run game a little bit more. And I wondered if that was a deliberate strategy or, or tactic to keep the ball out of Mahomes' hands. You know, we've seen a few teams try and employ that. And it wasn't working for them at all. I mean, Singletary was getting one yard, two yards, one yard. It wasn't happening. And we've said this when we talk about the Steelers, you know, having an effective run game is a real, real asset and keeps teams honest. But when they started with such an ineffective run game, I suppose that allows the defensive backs then to kind of spend more time on those receivers because there's no real threat there from the running back. That's exactly just it. You don't need players like Matthew to step into the box as much and support the run. You don't need the cornerbacks to be in zone coverage supporting the run. You don't need them to be doing that. They can focus on their strength and the strength of cornerbacks like Breland is man. They can just turn their back watch the man and just get going and not having to worry about coming down and supporting run. That's exactly it, Charles. And that weakness in the Buffalo run game fed into the effectiveness that Kansas City Chiefs had in the secondary. It's a good point. I suppose in theory, it's the correct strategy. If we can set up the run, if we can find some success there and we can keep the ball out of Mahomes' hands at the same time, then we create some space and some separation for our wide receivers that's our game and we go to it. But because they led so early with the run and it was so ineffective, I feel like it was the, it was the right strategy 
if they could implement it. But because they couldn't, it almost had a backfiring effect and worked against them. Yeah, and to kind of understand this fully, you kind of have to know the differences of how cornerbacks play when they are playing in man and when they're playing in zone. When you're playing in zone as a cornerback, you can affect the run game more than when you're playing in man. Because basically when you're in zone, as soon as the ball is snapped, you backpedal. And so you're always facing the quarterback. So you can see if the run is coming. When you're playing man coverage, as soon as the snap hits, you try and jam the wide receiver and then you go off with him. And so your back is then turned to the quarterback and turned to the running back. So you're less effective at stopping the run because basically you've turned your back and gone. Now, had the run game been more effective, the cornerbacks would have had to have basically maybe switched into zone a little bit more to support the run game. So all this kind of stickiness, you couldn't have done it because you'd have been playing a different type of coverage. And so, yeah, something that could have changed the game for the Bills had they managed to execute it, ultimately turned around and backfired against them. So sticking with the run game then, certainly I know one area you'll be wanting to talk about is the Kansas City Chiefs running game. You've been quite vocal in your, I suppose, constructive criticism of Allaire, but Allaire was probably not the hero of the hour in the run game for the Chiefs this time around. It was Williams. So should we talk about that briefly? Yeah, um, I just think that every time that Williams has picked up the ball through playoffs, he's looked more of a threat in all situations than Edwards Allaire has. Now, Edwards Allaire made uh, you know a couple of decent gains. He got a touchdown on a short yardage situation, which is something that I criticised him for. But then if you look back at that play, the... The blocking was excellent. The, the blocking was off the chain. Took out two men with like a single outward drive. You could have literally have driven a tractor through the gap that he had to run through. So, yeah, all right. He did run it in from a yard. But I mean, pff, we could have ran it in from a yard there, I'm pretty sure. But look, Williams, it seems, can go through the middle. He can go around the edge. There's more to his game than I think you're seeing from Edwards Hilaire. And to be honest, you know, Bell was a once great back. He's not really done too much at all since he's been with the Chiefs. I can't think of a game where he's had 50 yards. Has he had 50 yards in any game, Charles? I don't think so, has he? (laughs) Might have just snuck over 50 at some point, but yeah, it's there or thereabouts. Yeah, once for the Chiefs. Week 15 against New Orleans, 62 yards and 15 carries. But he's not really been a huge factor. If I was the Chiefs, from what I've seen, I'd still lean on Williams. Bell is going to be fit next week, so I'm sure he'll see some snaps. But I'd lean on Williams as much as possible. That's just my opinion. So we'll refrain from talking about the Super Bowl matchup this week because we'll cover that in next week's show when we have a clearer picture of everybody's availability and health and we can hopefully give a more accurate prediction of how we think the game's going to go. So let's move on now to uh, part one of our awards show. And Joe, why don't you kick us off with the first award? Sure. Okay. So the first award, Charles, is which team exceeded expectations the most? We'll both put forward a candidate for it and then we'll see if we can agree on a winner. So for me, it was uh, quite close between two teams, both of them in the same division, the Dolphins and the Bills. I think the Bills have taken a massive step forward with the addition of Diggs and with Allen's improved accuracy. 
but I think for me the winner is the Dolphins just because I snap yeah snap I really yeah. really saw them being a, a terrible team this season and and they finished ten and six yeah I had yeah you know you go to a start of a season all right they played well down the stretch last year but for the quality of defense that they played this year. I mean, the defense was at one stage, you know, arguably one of the best defenses in the league. Yeah, it was so good. They were getting so many interceptions early on in the season. They looked fantastic. I agree with you. I think the Dolphins exceeded expectations the most in my book. And they were making big splash plays in defense as well. Uh, I'm thinking plays like Van Ginkle. There was like a three or four week stretch where Van Ginkle was just doing stuff every week. They were exciting to watch in defense. I think, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail here. I'm questioning whether switching over to Tua when they did was the right move. I questioned it at the time. I still question it now. Yeah. And maybe they would have picked up an extra win, perhaps, had they gone with Fitzmagic all the way through the season. Yeah, I think you could easily argue that case for sure. We'll never know, though. Okay, so the next category, Charles, is which team has disappointed the most? Yeah, so again, for me, it was between two teams. The team that you support being one of them, I thought the Vikings performed way below the level that I expected and I imagine even lower than the level that you expected coming into the season. But for me, I just don't know how you can look past the Cowboys. On paper, they were a team that you would just expect to smash that division and they didn't even make it into the playoffs. I know Dak broke his leg, but that wasn't the issue there. Yeah, and I think that when I put my case forward in just a minute, I think that you've actually picked the right team there. I'll, I'll come back to the Cowboys in just a minute. I picked the Cardinals because there were flashes of brilliance. When you look at this Cardinals team at the start of a season when you've brought Hopkins into a team that already has, you know, Fitzgerald, Kirk, has Kyler Murray in there. This was supposed to be a super high-powered team. I know they're playing in one of the hardest divisions in football, but... To go 8-8 eight and eight with the flashes of brilliance we saw, I think overall it's a disappointing season from the Cardinals and they just went absent in too many games. Yeah, I can completely understand that. I think maybe even arguably the Seahawks were another team also in that division that really delivered below what the expectation was. But yeah, I was, I was quite hot on the Cardinals coming in. I thought, again, it was a team that you look at it on paper and you think they've got the right units to, to have that level of success and as you mentioned they had some great performances that you just thought right if that's the Cardinals team they could make a real drive for you know playoffs and Super Bowl here but they were inconsistent and they delivered below the level that you'd expect. But I do agree with you I think the Cowboys were the most disappointing team in the league their defense read like a who's who of players kind of start season you had you know Demarcus Lawrence in there Everson Griffin Dontari Poe the defense was abysmal. Uh, their offense, you know, it showed a few little sparks, but I can't think of a full game where they looked like a team that was scoring points. Zeke was pathetic. Like you say, Dak was injured, but Dak being absent wasn't the reason. This was just a real bad team. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to say, yeah, the Cowboys probably were the most disappointing team in the league. So let's move on to the next one. Which team had the best instant impact draft class? And I'm kind of caveating this question because you can't really judge a draft class properly for a good three or four years until those players have developed and become the players that they're going to be but in terms of just an instant impact who've had the biggest boost to their team which draft class do you think has made that impression yeah for me again it's between two teams and this is probably the i think the toughest decision out of all the awards for picking a single team both of them 
are more on the defensive side than they are on the offensive side. But uh, for me, it's between Tampa and Washington. I think their defensive rookies have had such an impact on both of those teams. And maybe my mind's just being coloured freshly from the whooping we got from Tampa Bay at the weekend. But I think if I was being forced to pick, I would probably lean towards Washington. I just think that they were a team that we expected very little from at the beginning of the season. And I think that their rookies have helped them get to playoffs. I mean, the Cowboys imploding have also helped them get to playoffs as well as the Giants. But yeah, I I just think Young, even Gibson, you know, and running back, I, I think they've come in and they've helped that team and had a big impact. Who else on the defense do you have except for Chase Young? Uh, safety, Curl. Okay. He was more of a second half of the season guy, but in that second half, I believe he finished the second half of the year as the highest graded safety from that rookie class. I think Tampa Bay. I think that when you look at the first four picks that Tampa Bay made... You said the defense as well. I think the offensive picks they made were very good, and they also had a good defensive pick. Their first four picks, first round, Tristan Wirfs, arguably the best offensive lineman in the draft. I know that Mekki Becton might question that, but Becton isn't as good in pass blocking. Tristan Wirfs good at everything, and he showed it through the season. Second pick in the second round, Anton Winfield. Oh, We've seen what he heroic, can do. Yeah. He went missing in about three or four games, and he blew coverage a couple of times. But aside from those rookie mistakes, he's been a, probably a candidate for Defensive Rookie of the Year. Third pick, Sean Vaughan, who I think is going to eventually take over as running back for Tampa Bay. And then fourth pick, Tyler Johnson, who, you know, made some clutch catches in the game against the Saints. You know, he's got wide receiver one potential there. So those first four picks from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I think, make them the draft class winners in my eyes. It was between a whisker for me, so I'm happy to seed this one and, and give it to Tampa Bay because I can happily see either team take that. I magnanimously appreciate that. So, just to wrap things up, shall we look at how the bracket is going? Change places! <laughs> After my start, it just shows you it just doesn't matter what you do in wildcard round. It all comes down to divisional championships and if your teams are still in there at that stage. So do you want to update us where we are, Charles? Yeah, so Christopher C is topping the leaderboard at the moment and there's only one game left to play. So I suppose it's going to come down to whether he backed one of the teams in it from the start. Because if he did, there's an, what, eight times multiplier, 10 times multiplier, something like that. So Well, I think he did because I think the only way he would have got 16 points from the conference round was if he had two teams going all the way through. So I think that Chris probably has a team in the Super Bowl with a full multiplier right now. Big. As does Gavin R. So it's looking to me really like it's between Gavin R and Chris C. But we've seen things kind of, you know, change around. So who knows? I did have the Chiefs to win. So I'm still in there with that. But I think I'm too far behind to make up any real ground now. So I would imagine that one of the guys in front of you has probably got the Chiefs to win. I'd have thought so, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, probably still a small chance for Scott P, but it's looking like Chrissy, Gavin R or Scott P, get ready to come on here and give us some sass because you might get on the show. There we go. Well, Joe, thank you very much. We'll talk all about the Super Bowl in next week's show and do part two of our awards. Looking forward to it, Charles. 